Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. This week's Acquirers podcast is brought to you by my good friends at Validia. Validia runs quantitative stock selection models using factor-based strategies from 22 published books and academic research papers with long-term track records of success. Validia has combed through books about historically successful investors such as Warren Buffett, Ben Graham, and Peter Lynch, and academic research papers that contain unique investment strategies and uses them to run model portfolios it has tracked since 2003. You may recognize Validia since two of its founders, Jack Forehand and Justin Carboneau, both good friends of mine, have appeared as guests on the podcast. Through the end of February, Validia is offering 33% off an annual subscription to both its standard and professional product to listeners of the Acquirers podcast. To find out more about Validia, or to take a free trial, you can go to validia.com forward slash Toby. Again, that's V-A-L-I-D-E-A dot com forward slash Toby. And just wait while I, just let me record the intro and then, uh, uh, so I'll just in three, two, one. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Aquarius podcast. Today, my special guest is Michael Mitchell. He's Ignore Narrative on Twitter. He's a former partner in a hedge fund. Uh, he's a deep value guy through and through. We're going to talk how he assesses opportunities, how he met and worked for Michael Price, uh, the curate deal that uh, he and Bill, were, Bill Brewster were involved in right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit AcquiresFunds.com. You're uh, one of the rare birds who has actually managed to go through, work in a hedge fund and then retire at what looks like a reasonably young age. Oh, thank so you. How, how did that all come about? How did you get started? How did, you, how, how did it happen? So um, I started my career in 2004. Uh, well, really, I should start it in 2003. I interned for Michael Price at his family shop, MFP Investors. I fell in love with investing when I met Michael Price. It was like, you know, stars aligning for me. It's like, this is the first billionaire I've ever met. Um, he's just so matter of fact and makes everything so simple. <laughs> he, was, he walked me through, uh, me, a group of people through his thought process on Martha Stewart Omnimedia back in 2004 and how he had his analysts do a sum of the parts and stuck an enterprise value on, subtracted that, divided the equity by the share count. And I was like, my God, this is the easiest thing in the world. Like, this is so easy. <laughs> and the guy made a billion, made, made, a, made himself a billionaire doing it. I was like, I could absolutely do this. So I fell in love with it. I got an internship with him in 2003, uh, which was a lot of fun. I asked him at the end of the internship, uh, you know, I did my I, I psyched myself up. I went in and, uh, you know, I was Michael and, was, and he's like a larger than life character. Like, I, I really would like to work for you. You know, I'll do anything you want and I will work for free. And he, 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 he actually said, I'm sorry, you're overpriced. You know, <laughs> so I was like, okay, all right, well, I can't afford to pay you. So it looks like I'm gonna have to go find another job. Uh, he helped me get a job at Jeffrey's in research. I was there for a year. Um, I covered, it was a, it was a great job in 04. I covered post-reorg equities. So companies that, you know, Jeffrey's bankers at the time, and I don't think this is the case now, but at the time, the uh, bankers, especially in high yield, were just like, whatever, whatever needed to get financed, they would finance it. And so the life cycle company would go get high yield from Jeffrey's and then inevitably it would default. 
And then the high yield team would pass it over to the equity team and the equity guys didn't want it because it was in, in reorg. So I was this weird hybrid analyst, junior analyst. I worked for a guy called Farouk Farouk. He's a wonderful person. So I was this weird hybrid guy. <laughs> who would, Farouk. You know Farouk? Yeah. yeah. So I worked for Farouk for two years, actually. I won at Jeffries and then won at Kellogg Capital. So we, we picked up uh, the, the, the paper when it was in bankruptcy and then would cover the reorg equity. And I loved that job. That was of all the jobs I've had, it was my favorite. After a year, Farouk had become this, you know, very popular character. We'd done well. I mean, it was it was a great time to be in restructuring in 04. And he got a job at Kellogg. And so I was stranded. I, I uh, didn't know what I was going to do. And I, I begged Farouk for a job at Kellogg. And he said, well, you know, we'll see what we can do. And then, you know, somehow I just, my he just got tired of hearing me beg. So he, he was like, yes, you can come be my junior analyst at Kellogg. So I did that for a year. Um, I enjoyed Kellogg. They actually were based, uh, they had a New York office where I worked, but they were based in La Jolla. So I got to go to La Jolla once a quarter, you know, and stay, as I think it's the nice Mission Hotel, I forget the name of it, but I was in La Jolla one week for, you know, every three months. It was amazing. Um, and they always tell you it was a scam. They always, you, you may have a different plan. They always tell you, oh, it's California. It's just you know, three hours later. You know, we work, we start work at 4 a.m., but we get off early. We never got off early ever. Uh, yeah. We always worked until five. I was like, this is what I'm working 13 hours here, but you know, the view was better. So I, I guess, you know, the weather was amazing. So I, I was there for a year. Farouk left. Um, and I, the, the fund was small as 50 million did special sits and had amazing performance in 2004 In 2005, it was flat. And it was like, there's not enough economics to go around. So Farouk was like, you know, what? I'm just going to do my own thing. He left. And that, uh, kind of put me into uh, like another, you know, holding pattern. I didn't know what I was going to do. It just so happens that uh, one of Michael Price's senior analysts got a job at Breeden Capital uh, as a head of research and trading for a new startup hedge fund. And he needed analysts. So he called me and um, I needed a job. He needed analysts. It was perfect. The timing was great. I mean, it was just as Farouk left. It was like the nice week or the next week, Bob calls and says, you know, come on over to Breeden. And um, I went to Breeden. I was there for five and a half years, four of which Bob was there. He left to start his own fund. He now is a partner at Cardinal Capital. Um, made some of the best friends of my life when I was at Breeden. Uh, I had interesting stories, which you probably heard me tell, which I'm happy to talk about again if you want. Um, and then uh, Breeden, after Bob left, it was kind of obvious to me that uh, I didn't want to be there anymore. So I, I spent 18 months looking for another job. And Finally, uh, the guys at Locustwood Capital took pity on me in May of 2011. Uh, I really liked the structure of that fund. It was a $400 million long short, you know, event, but mostly, you know, very long bias, but event driven special situations fund. The guy, Steve Erico, who runs it, had been there over a decade. His number two is a guy called Bill Gibbons, uh, had been there with him the entire time. The turnover was low. There were three guys, 400 million. I thought, my God, if, if, I could get this job and we could grow to from 400 million to a billion. Um, I mean, it could just be a wonderful setup for me with being the fourth guy. And sure enough, uh, it was great. We grew from 400 million to uh, a billion two when I left. Um, I had a, a very, very, very good run there. I did well from uh, really 2012 all the way up to 2017. In 2018, I had a, um, it kind of came to a crossroads where I had been pushing the firm to get more concentrated, to take bigger bets. What I had noticed over time 
Toby, you should just stop me because if you let me go, no, I'll just keep going. Go. This, this will be like 45 minutes. Of that would like be ideal. I don't want to talk. <laughs> go. So I had been pushing for at Locustwood. What I, what I noticed, I knew this myself coming out of Breeden, but what really uh, struck me um, at, at Locustwood was our best ideas generally were home runs. Like generally we were very, when we had a lot of confidence and conviction in something, it generally worked. Our, for whatever reason, the sort of midfield ideas for us, the things that we, like, I like it. I see how it could work. Like Eastman chemical would be a good example for me. I like it. I see how it can work, but I really just, it's, it's a low conviction, but you know, it, there's commodity cycles. I don't fully understand. They've been, and one of them has been beneficial. Two of them have been terrible. Is that going to continue? You know, their acetate toe business I like, but you know, the end markets that don't necessarily, you get all this. So what I found over time was when we really had confidence, it did well. And that, so what I was pushing the firm for, for years, really in 2016, 2017, because I was doing so well, I had a lot of political capital. I was trying to use my political capital to get us just to focus on our best ideas. And my, my dream for that portfolio was no more than 20 securities, of which I was arguing that no more than 10 of them should matter and 10 should be on the farm team. And my spearhead of that was Charter, which uh, we had made a big, uh, made a really big bet on when they announced their merger with Time Warner. They had done really well for us, and I thought it had a lot more to go. And so I think we were moving that direction. Another guy joined the firm in 2017 or 2018, had a, a, sorry, 2016 or 2017, had a very different view. Uh, the view was for more diversification, um, looking at the index that we had benchmarked ourselves to, the S&P, and then trying to talk in terms of we're short this factor or we're short this industry and we're long this one because we're not long it. And, the, and that never really resonated with me, but that's the way he thought about the world. Ultimately in 2018, um, I had a material drawdown and it, it uh, I think I ended that year in the, and personally I was only down four, four or 5%, but in the fund, I think I was down 20 or 25. At one point I was down like 40. And so that the push was, you know, Mike, you need more ideas, different businesses. And uh, I just was like, you know, man, I don't need different businesses. I need to buy more charters. How much charter can we buy? And I think charter was like 275 or 300 at the time. I was like, this is the only thing we should own. And um, I, it was clear that I lost that fight. And uh, I had two sort of aha moments. There was one um, where my, my boss was like, you're just going to have to change. And, and I, I, I thought about that very seriously of like, well, do I want to do it? And could I do it? And ultimately he said, um, it was, I'll never forget. It. it was great. It was this aha moment where he said, Mike, I can't fire myself. And, and I thought about that and I was like, you know what? You're exactly right. I mean, you, you can't, you, you're the guy, this is your fund. You can, you're not going to change. You can't change. Or this is what you're doing. And you can't fire yourself. If I want to do something different, I have to quit. Like there isn't a solution. I, I just, there's not a, a, a middle ground here. I can't fire you. If I was the, if I was the PM, I would fire you. Um, and I'd fire the factor guy, you know, I was, I was pretty open about that. And, 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 but I'm the problem, you know, and I think differently, so I'm just going to leave. And it, that was the first kind of aha. And the second was, um, I, I took a week and I went to Colorado. We have, my wife and I have a place there and we're moving there, but we have another place there where we vacation. And I took a week and it just kind of struck me that um, it was a really, I mean, I've been, uh, Tobias, I've been so blessed. It struck me that 
um, a, a million dollar bonus didn't mean anything anymore. I mean, it really didn't move the needle. And it's not that I have this enormous amount of money, you know, I'm, I'm Chamath and I'm just this wealthy dude. It's not true. I have way more money than I need, but it's regardless of how much money I have, I didn't need anymore. I mean, if he gave me another million dollars, I would still be in this house. I would drive the same car. I would eat at the same restaurant. My kids will go to the same university, whatever that is. Uh, There's nothing about more money that was going to change my life. And when you got to that, well, I got to that moment and I just asked my wife, I was like, why am I doing this? I, I'm miserable. You know, I, I'm getting home late. I'm stressed. Um, and what's the point? And she said, well, there isn't. And I said, well, let's just move to Colorado and open a practice for you there. And I'll do that. And I can invest our money. And, and I, I showed her how compound interest works. I told her I was confident that over time I could compound our money at 10%, that it would be lumpy, but that was my target. And I showed her that, you know, based on how much we have and how much I think we're going to burn and me doing 10%, we're going to die with so much money, we're going to give it all away anyway. So really, it's a question of, am I giving away a pile this big? Or am I giving away a pile this big? It's like, it doesn't, it's not going to change my life. So that was the decision tree. I retired at 39. I wanted to get in just before my 40th birthday. So I could say I retired in my thirties. <laughs> that was it. I've been on my own for two years. It's been great. Well, congrats. Uh, what, Thank you. what changed? I mean, I think, I think I know exactly what has changed. Cause I think you've just said so, but I, I just want to kind of, you, you were, you were prob- probably running a little more diversified than you've wanted to be in the fund. And so now it's your own money. You don't have anybody looking over your shoulder. It mm-hmm. really is uh, just your own assessment of risk and return. So how do you now run your personal capital? So uh, it, it's, uh, I, I am a very simple human. Like I just don't, the world for me is simple. I eat hot dogs for lunch every day. You know, it's just, I'm a simple guy. Um, so I think about the world very simply. I want to make 10%. So what I need to do is go out and find something that will pay me 10% a year, right? And then that's much easier said than done, but it's very simple. So you think about how you can earn money on an investment. Well, you know, there's two ways. One, I can go buy an asset and then that I, it's cheap. And then I turn around and sell that asset and I get you know, gain on sale, but still I make my return, right? The other way I could do it is I could buy a stream of cash flows. And, and that cash flow stream can look, as far as I'm concerned, can look like anything. Uh, the important thing to me is that Anything I'm getting in terms the- of like lumpy or growing. Oh, or sure. Cyclical. Yeah. So you, you're not necessarily looking for something that's compounding over time. You're just looking for no, how you get only- the 10% is irrelevant. Yeah. The, how I get the 10% is irrelevant. The, 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 there's two things that are relevant. It's, and it's not where the money comes from. The two things that are, well, I shouldn't say that. If somebody pitches me to be a drug dealer, you know, sell illicit substances, the answer is no. I don't care what the returns are. But you know, short of something illegal, I'm saying... So short of that, um, all I care about are that I understand it, right? And, and, and it, it has to make sense to me intrinsically. It can't be something where I'm like stretching out on a spreadsheet to get the return. I have to know this is how you make your money. This is how I'm going to make my money. And it has to be obvious to me. It can't be something where I'm like, I really need to spend time thinking about it. And the, the benefit of retirement is I can do anything I want. I don't have to work. So I read a book. I play a video game, I, anything I want to do, I can do. And so if it's not just absolutely obvious to me, I don't do it. Uh, so that's the one thing. It has to be obvious. And I don't, I'm not smart enough to be things to be obvious in a lot of spaces. So for me, it's like 
cable. It didn't take me long to figure that out. It became, it wasn't obvious to me early, but I got it explained to me and then it made a lot of sense. Uh, QVC was pretty obvious to me for different reasons. Uh, it just has to be obvious. I spend a lot of time in liquidations. Um, I haven't recently, but historically I have because they're just so simple. Uh, that's usually the gain on sale, unfortunately, is you only get paid once, but I'm okay just getting paid once. It's fine as long as I can find something else to do later. So the one thing, it, I have to understand it. The other thing is, even if I understand it, it has to fit my personality. And so I, if I were going to give one message to uh, an investor, professional or starting, I would say the most important thing and the one thing that you absolutely can do is know yourself. So uh, Howard Marks has a great framework for this for market cycles. He says, we don't necessarily, we don't have the ability to predict where we're going tomorrow, but we ought to know where we are now. We should spend a lot of time thinking about where we are now. And that can help us in, in our decision-making process today. Well, I use that same heuristic for uh, how I think about investing. I, I don't know necessarily how markets are going to behave. I don't necessarily know how people are going to behave, but I can, I can know enough about myself to know how I'm going to behave. So if I understand it, I also need to know that I'm going to behave well around it. I've, I've seen so many times at all the different stops I've had on Wall Street, all four different stops I've had on Wall Street, I've seen so many times people make huge mistakes that they almost know they're making in the moment, but they just can't help themselves. Like that, you know, today it would be the guy, uh, the, the SPAC king buying GME calls. Like he just can't help himself. Like that's just, he just can't help himself. So for me, I, I know I'm not going to buy GME calls in a healthy way, so I'm just not going to buy any GME calls. And I think those are really the only two things that matter, matter to me anyway. If I know what I'm getting, I know how to think about it, I understand it, and I know that I'll behave well and rationally and thoughtfully when things go against me, then I'm, we're off to the races. And I, for me to get excited, it has to be comfortably over 10 because I believe fundamentally in this idea of, it seems like a lost art now, but the idea of margin of safety is incredibly important to me because I, there's lots I just don't know. So it kind of has to tee up in there. It doesn't seem like there's much of that in the world these days, but yeah, that's it. I'm not sure that makes any sense to buy. No, in my mind, it makes perfect. sense. <laughs> no, that's perfect. I, that's, I, I, I think about it exactly the same way. So it makes perfect sense to me. But the, okay. the, uh, when, when you're sizing these positions, so you find something that is tractable, it's understandable, uh, you can see yourself holding it if it goes against you because yeah. you're going to understand the mechanics of the business yeah. or the, the the mechanism that's underneath whatever's happening. How much capital are you then thinking about? I want to allocate to this thing. How much? How does that thought process occur? So um, I, uh, I I think about this. I think I think I'm different from most people, um, but I. So I listen to, I've listened to just about anything I could get my hands on from Munger or Buffett, I try to listen to or read. So if they've said it, I want to hear it. And I, there was a, I forget the year, you may actually know this, I forget the year um, where uh, Warren talks about concentration. He says, you know, really, you know, you should not have more than, if you're, if you're an active, you know, business analyst and stock picker, you really shouldn't have more than four or five stocks. Like that's, that should be plenty. If you feel like you need more than that, you probably should just buy a low cost index, right? And so I, I took that in that meeting and I was like, concentration makes sense. But I actually took it a step further. And when Charlie talked about, you know, at one time having over 100% of his net worth in a single idea, <laughs> I think that, that just kind of like hit me as like, well, wait a minute. I bet you I could find something so easy and obvious that it's worth borrowing money to do. 
my wife won't let me borrow money. So I, I, uh, I would if she would let me, but she will not let me. She's way too conservative to do that. So I promised her I would never take margin, but uh, that resonated. So I heard that and I was like, you know what? I should be looking for something that's so easy and obvious. I'm willing to put 100% of my net worth in it. QVC came very close to that for me. And it, it, the analysis is, is, again, it's really simple. Forgetting that business, I don't, we don't even have to talk about the business. But if you, Tobias, tell me, Mike, you give me $100 today, and I'm going to give you $50 next year, $50 a year after that, and then we'll see. Well, you know, I've read your books. I like you. You know, Bill, you're a good reference for me. Like, take all my money. You know, see you in two years, and we'll see what happens. To me, that's an easy bet to make. I don't, need, I don't have to think about it. It's two years. I get all my money back. The risk is zero. Once I think the risk is approaching zero, I just push money in. I don't care so much. And that's another uh, Howard Marks thing for me is I just focus a lot on the downside and I just let the upside kind of take care of itself. So if I, if I know I'm not going to lose money and I don't do it so much in thinking like I'm paying a low multiple for a business, so I'm going to be fine. I don't think of it that way you're giving me my money back. And that, that was the, the change I think that happened with Curate that got me really excited is I know those guys pretty well. When they made that switch to, we're gonna buy back stock to we're just gonna give you capital. In my mind, the risk reward equation changed really dramatically and it just lowered that risk. So I pushed, uh, I pushed a lot of chips on the table. I wish I would have pushed a lot more. <laughs> I sold everything I could to buy it, but I didn't sell everything at all. I just, I have some liquid positions that I couldn't sell. I probably would have to do it. Uh, why, don't, but, why don't we go through Curate? Because uh, uh, yeah. folks, folks who followed um, Bill will, will know it, but folks uh, who have followed this podcast may not know it that well. So let's, let's talk about the opportunity from when you found it to and I know, I know that you did you had covered it in the past but let's um, yeah. yeah let's why don't we what, just how do you how do you think about that opportunity how did you think about it so um so i i had found qvc a friend uh, pitched me on it when it was part of um uh liberty interactive uh and they liberty interactive was spinning off another business called liberty ventures which turned into gca liberty which is now you know they're fun people to follow because there's always something happening uh i picked it up in 2012 and i i really did a, a for me a very deep dive you know talk to management go see the plant watch the show understand the depth of financials look at the competitors try to understand the industry so i did a lot of work and i decided that it was a business that was worth owning and I thought I was buying it for 10 times free cash flow. And that is a 10 times free cash flow for a business I know and like is kind of a magic number for me. When I see that, if the number, if free cash flow is growing and I like management, I, that's when I'm like, okay, I love it. Right. And that, that, so I found that with QVC and I thought this is a business I can understand. It's misunderstood by the populations, why it's so cheap. And I love management and they're buying back stock. And, you know, you, I'm sure you've heard this pitch a million times. So, uh, the narrative on QVC forever has been that the business is in decline. And depending on who you ask, they'll give you a decline of like, well, it's actually declining because they're losing customers or uh, the business is deteriorating because you're losing you know, linear video subs or whatever. That had been the narrative. And my view was very simple. If you look at their core customers, their core customer count is growing and their core customers are spending more. And the margins and returns on the business are phenomenal. As long as those people keep spending what they're spending and we keep adding to the funnel every year, I can grow small. My EBITDA can grow small. The free cash flow is massive. 50% of EBITDA flows through to free cash flow. Free cash flow is massive. And I'm paying a little multiple for it. They'll just buy back stock. It's like, fine. It'll be a, 
a creeping public LBO. Like that's my downside. And so maybe I'll get multiple expansion. It can be a trade. Or if not, I'll just own the whole business in 10 years. So that, let's that just, was let's just, just Let's talk about the difference between subs and core customers. How do you, how do you make that distinction? Well, uh, so when I, I'm sorry, I, I bleed over into cable land and I start talking about subs. So uh, linear video is in structural decline. I mean, it, 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 there's just no doubt. I and mean, nobody, nobody thinks it's growing. It's in structural decline. It's a question of how quickly the cable and satellite providers, uh, video uh, subscribers are leaving. Unfortunately, QVC's business is based on video. So their customers and, and their customer skews, we know the, the more video you watch, the more valuable of a customer you are, the more you spend, if there's a direct correlation. So if you uh, watch a lot of TV, if you're a linear subscriber and you watch a lot of TV, you buy a lot from Q. If you stream occasionally, you buy less. If you don't stream at all, you buy even less. So linear subs, TV subs do matter. Um, and so the idea is always for Q has been, well, how do we, as they're pivoting, how do we pivot our product to sort of meet those needs? And they had been able to do it, actually. You saw uh, over time as people were leaving the, the, uh, the linear cable TV bundle, uh, QVC's numbers were still going higher. And so it was kind of indicative of like, they can manage to this. It's a question of how well they can manage to it. But my whole theory was like, who cares if the cash flow is going high? You know, I have a stream of cash flow. It is, I'm paying a very small amount for that stream of cash flow and it's growing. Like, what else do you need to know? You know, you believe in it. It's going to be there 10 years from now. Yes. Okay. Buy it. It's pretty easy. So that, so the sub is somebody who watches TV. The customer is somebody who watches Q and then shops. And the more linear that they watch, the more valuable they are. It's pretty simple. So I owned it for a long time and uh, got burned in it. I, I, I actually lost a little bit of money over time or maybe broke even, but it ended up being a bad investment for me because of the opportunity cost. The value was all added on the Liberty Ventures, which I got even bigger in. Um, and so I ended up making a lot of money on the complex, but Q I didn't make much money on. And the, the turning point for me was in 2019, uh, their customer counts and revenue started declining precipitously. I mean, it was a flat business forever that just like now it's down four, now it's down five. And, and that continued for, I want to say six quarters. And I, I gave them one quarter where I was like, okay, we'll see if we can get through it. And then the second quarter it happened. I was like, you know, what? I just, it's clear that I was wrong. And so I, I try to be uh, as it, you can, it's, you can fool a lot of people. I just don't want to I don't want to fool people, but I really don't want to fool myself. That's the main thing is like, I just want to be open and honest with myself. And if I'm wrong, fine. You know, I'm a big boy. I can be wrong. I can lose money. And at that time in 2019, I was like, I'm wrong. We'll sell it. We'll move on. You'll find something else to do. So I sold it. Um, and then I, I had followed it and I had followed Bill. I followed all the quarters because I've been involved with it for so long and COVID hits. And I, and I immediately think like, this probably is good for Q because people are home watching TV and you're seeing retailers that there's like retailers that have been winning in a, in a COVID world, like Target and, and Walmart, certainly, but then also, you know, online e-commerce and, and that's, you know, Q makes money when people watch TV. We're all home watching TV. So I logically thought they'd be doing better. I did nothing with that information uh, until in the second quarter, they released results and what caught my attention was not the results and the turn in the business uh, that you know, obviously happened because of COVID, it was that they changed their capital allocation strategy. And uh, one of the ways I've made enormous amounts of money over time 
is when a business is able to change their cost of capital structurally. And that that's part of the, the bread and butter of event-driven investing, right? So you're, you have two businesses, one is highly valued, one is low value. Um, you spin off the high value one and boom, all of a sudden the market sees it and the whole structure's cost of capital changes overnight. Um, it's, it happened two years ago with car auction services. I mean, you, it happens all the time. It's a way to make a lot of money really fast. Uh, I thought with QVC or with Curate, when they changed their capital return policy from share repurchase to dividend, my mind sees, and by the way, one of their dividends was a preferred security, which is brilliant, which we could talk about. But it, 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 in my mind, I see this and I think cost of capital changing, money coming back to me. And oh, by the way, on a pro forma basis, it's two times earnings. And it's two times earnings levered, you know, but it's two times earnings. So if you think the business is going to be around two years from now and you think they're going to keep returning capital, the decision becomes really easy. Like you don't have to really think about it. You're just like, okay, you know, and, and I, I figured that, so they, Greg Maffei's wonderful and also has an ego on him and he likes to win. So in my mind, QVC had been a big loser. They know QVC had been a loser. It's a problem for them. All of a sudden they change the capital allocation policy and it works. My guess is they're probably going to press it. And it turns out that's exactly what happened. It happened faster than I thought. But they returned capital to us. They gave us $4.50, a special dividend and a preferred on a $10 stock. I mean, 45% of my capital came back right away, which is basically like a public liquidation. And then you know, two months later, they announced another $1.50 in a special catch dividend. So 60% of my basis came back pretty much right away. And my guess is uh, that they'll continue to do more. I mean, it, it worked. The change of the cost of capital was not just the dividend. They, this preferred security they gave you yields 8%. So think about, and, and it's trading today, I didn't see it this morning, but it's trading right around par, so right around $100 a share. So it's actually yielding eight. So it's, this is just brilliant. They took a billion dollars in free cash flow run rate. It's actually quite a bit more on a trailing basis, but run rate's a billion. They carved out, and at the time it was trading for four times free cash flow. So a billion dollars trading for four billion. They carved out a hundred million dollars in free cash flow of their billion and they put it in a preferred security. That preferred security, they said yields eight, right? So what does that mean? Well, it's trading at 12 and a half times free cash flow. So you took 10% of your, your cash flow and you put it in a vehicle that's now yielding, that now trades at 12 and a half. That's how you create the stub for two. And that in my mind is like, well, that changed your cost of capital. Now I, I have a stream of cash flow over here valued at 12 and a half that I just got and I get what's left. Why wouldn't you just do that with another hundred million dollars? And they very well might. I mean, I, I, I'm you know knock on what I'm hopeful they do because it worked and it's 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 pretty straightforward. So that's what got me. That was the reason to buy Q last year was that they're changing their cost of capital and this event is very meaningful. Now it's a little different because the stock has reacts basically been. I haven't seen it today, but it's 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 up ninety ish percent from where we were buying, almost doubled. And that changes the equation. There isn't a known event now. So now you're looking at the business and they generate about $2.50 a share in free cash flow and you're paying about $12 for it. So you're looking at the business and saying, well, is that worth four times, five times forever? It was worth 10. Uh, maybe is it worth more? Because when it was worth 10, the market was at 13 and now the market's at 22. So it, that becomes a harder game where you really do have to have a view on the business to say, you know, six times should be 10 times, you know, that, that's, that's where you're saying, 
we're getting closer to a duration where business view really matters. You know, the stock going back down to six, like, well, if that happens, then all of a sudden the duration conversation becomes pretty easy because I'm only underwriting two to three years. So we're at a little bit of a different time. I, I, I was huge in it. And I basically now have taken all of my basis out of it. And I'm, I'm letting, it's very Peter Lynch of me. I'm like, it's like, oh, let it double, sell half, leave the half in. You know, that, I, that resonated with me again, because it's just so simple. Um, so that's basically what I've done. And I'm letting it ride and we'll see. You know, we, we will know, in my view, if the business, if what happened during COVID has structurally changed the business, and it could, uh, management thinks there's actually a pretty decent shot that that's the case. So we'll find out in the second quarter. They're going to lap really good numbers from COVID. And if the numbers are flat, maybe we get lucky and it's slightly up, uh, then I'll be a very happy shareholder. If not, you know, then sort of, you know, back to square one. But it's okay because I've got my basis out. So who cares? Yeah. So the opportunity from your perspective was the downside risk here is is very low to approaching zero because there's a there's a very clear path to getting the money back, including a big payment right out of the gate, that 45% payment out of the gate. And then they're restructuring some of the cash flows where previously they've been trading. You've got to assess the business. You've got to sort of have a view on what multiple this should trade at. There's some decline. There's a lot of moving parts to saying, we're just going to say, we're going to issue a PREF with an 8% yield. And then that, of course, that's you're embedding a 12 and a half times um, multiple in that. And so then they can keep, keep on doing that. So it's a, it's a very simple, and you really don't have to have a great view on the business because you're saying, I'm going to get my capital back. And then what I have, rem- that, that can just trade where it trades and I'm, I don't mind. Now it's, now it's, a, it's an option that I, I ended up getting for free that it looks like it's worth a lot. And we'll see. I, I'll really know, like I said, mid this year, kind of towards the end of the summer, I think I'll have a much better perspective on whether that option that I got for free is worth, I mean, it, Tobias could be worth $10 billion. I have no idea. It really just depends. If if that billion dollars in cash flow is stable and growing, I promise you it's not worth $5 billion. So it, it, if it's declining, then it's a debate about, well, is it worth 5 billion? You know, it's roughly where the market cap is now, is or six. Is it worth 2 billion? Is it worth, but if it's growing, it's worth a lot more than $6 billion. That, that I know for sure. It, if it's shrinking, then it's in anybody's guess. I'm not 100% sure, but I do think there is a very real chance that we're, we're grow, grow, baby. Or maybe you don't even have to grow anymore. If you're a retailer, people have heard of that it's a massive decline. Maybe it is worth $27 billion. I don't know what the GME market cap is now. Maybe, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm, I'm looking for the wrong thing. Maybe I do want the cash flows to go down so we get the value. You got to update your browser pretty quickly to find out what the, yeah, what the market cap on GME is. It swings around a little bit. I, I can't buy it anyway. I, I'm, I do business through TD Ameritrade, so I, I can't buy any stuff. Oh, they locked you out. Yeah. 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 That's nasty, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. What a time to be alive. But yeah, that's that's curated. I love stuff like that. I think that um, it just kind of speaks to me at a fundamental level. Uh, I those those are the situations where I talked to a couple of guys who are very sharp, who uh, were really on top of it and didn't do anything. That those were the situations where if being intelligent actually worked against you. Uh, if if you really smart. stopped, yeah, if, if you stopped and really wanted to understand what was going on, you missed it. And and that those are those are great for me because I you know I'm able to dial back and just take things really get them to the base level 
pretty easily. And, and I, a lot of guys missed it just because they were overthinking it. It, it really wasn't that complicated. To me, that's a pretty good description of uh, like that's that's a pretty good description of what I'm looking for in the market. That's a deep value kind of trade where um, you can see the way you get your capital back. Don't really know about the business. Like the business could be up or down. It's hard to assess, but that's not really what the opportunity is. What the opportunity is is just to get a lot of your capital back, and then just to find out. And I think that the world, so like the, my strategy, really topped out similarly to, to the way that you describe it up to 2017 felt really easy and mm-hmm. in 2018 to date it's been just absolute misery just going Brutal. backwards and, yeah. and for whatever reason it's not working but i and so i'm I, I try to listen to a lot of other guys who are doing well in this market and and what they're what what seems to be working in this market is people who are very good business analysts mm-hmm. who are looking at the business and almost don't care about the capital structure because I look at some of these capital structures and I think you, you really got to be right here on the. Oh my gosh, you got to be exactly right. You have absolutely no room. Talk about that margin of safety that I look for; it's not there, and maybe it doesn't need to be. I don't know, but I, you know, I just don't know. I mean, if your definition of a great business is like a twenty percent plus return on equity, thirty five percent plus margins, growing over time, you know, they're just. There's nothing in the market that's got a 10% free cash flow yield, like a fat free cash yeah. flow yield on something like that is 5%. Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, that, and that's why I don't, I don't, I've sold a lot of uh, the 5% yields. I had a pretty big position in Charter, which I just sold last year and paid all my taxes on it to buy Curate and Formula One, I'm very small on. I, I would so much rather, you know, the gain on sale business is the game that you know, you're talking about and that I've been playing recently it's not as good of a business, right? It's, it's just not. I mean, we, I have to pay taxes. I've realized returns, which really stinks. And I have to go recreate it. You know, every, I have to recreate it again and again and again. And there's no guarantee that you and I are going to find another curate or that I'm going to find another liquidation. And I, I, in my mind, I'm confident I'll always find something, but you know, is it going to be really juicy? I may be sitting on my hands for five years. You know, I have no idea. And, and I'm okay. So I'd rather sit on my hands than chase something. Uh, but it's not as good of a business. I would so much rather find charter at 300, buy it and, and just own it forever. But it just, that doesn't fit my personality. When something gets to fair value, I just have a hard time owning it. And you know, some people will tell you like a charter is not fair value. It's very cheap. Cause look at, you know, interest rates being at you know, zero and that's yielding five and you should want it five. And it's like, well, five isn't my hurdle. My hurdle's 10. So, you know, and I don't care where interest rates are. That doesn't, I don't have a view on interest rates. So um, I, for me, it's like, I, I just like owning mispriced securities. I don't like owning fairly valued securities. It feels bad to me to own it. I get parent, like, ironically, I'm not, I, I don't mind owning something that's a piece of crap at two times earnings. If I really, you know, believe that I'm getting all my money back, but something at, you know, 20 times or 25 or 50 times, it gives me heartburn. I, you know, and, yeah. and that's been the wrong way to behave. That's by the way, that's, that's been incorrect. It's you, you should be more excited about the high multiples, not less. So what changed? Um, I, so I have never been, so everybody's a product of their environment. Right. And so I started really paying attention to the market in the late nineties in the, in the dot-com boom. My father was a college professor started an online, a really interesting online business. He, he decided, he, it was a corporate psychologist. So he was a psychology professor, a corporate psychologist. He, he 
did pre-application screening for executives. So, you know, you're going to hire at the acquire fund, the new chief marketing officer. And my dad said, well, bring them into me. We'll do a personality assessment. We'll also just look at their background and history and I'll give them a psychological evaluation just to see if he'll, this person will culturally fit into, you know, the acquire fund group. And, and so he did that and did very well. He had a lot of, um, blue collar hires. So think nurses, truck drivers, and he would have a, a written personality exam for them to go through like a psychological profile. So you'd fill out, you know, like think fill in the blanks, fill in the dots, you know, kind of thing. And in the mid nineties, he decided that that would be way better done on the internet. And he created a company called iJob.com, which he ended up selling to, it wasn't pre-revenue, but it was like a million in revenue. And he sold it to uh, Lawson Software, a public company, I think it's still public. I don't really follow them, but uh, sold it to Lawson Software with a, a small, but for us, because we were, were essentially broke, was a big number, but uh, a small upfront payment and then a lot of back end, which of course never materialized. But it was enough to change my family's. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Shocker. Never materialized. I thought you were going to so tell me you I, got the equity and now it's, it's up it's up 500 no, times or something. No, 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 no. It, it, all, this, uh, every, all this wonderment you see around you is, is, is all my, my own earnings. There was no family contribution to this. Although my dad, I didn't have any student loan debt. My, my dad was able to pay for my entire college, which I'm immensely grateful for and i also uh there's a safety net embedded when when you feel like you know your dad did something like that because you're like well i could go take a chance on wall street if it doesn't work what's the worst that could happen i move back to oklahoma i'll get a job it's not the end of the world so you, there's a, a psychological you know safety net in there for me but uh, all this wonderment and white plains is this all me uh so he did that i saw that happen it's like this is amazing i started a business myself uh, i dropped out of college actually to do it i raised a million bucks i started an online business i was focused on college students predictably now that really was pre-revenue it, it never became revenue it was just pre it was always pre-revenue right up until i had to shut it down because funding dried up uh but i watched that happen and then i watched the fallout from that and to me uh and then sh then you know set the scene. And then I meet Michael Price, right? He's like a, a classic value, you know, it's like buy stuff cheap. He's the, you know, first chapter of the vulture investors, you know, it, and he, he tells me what he does. This is before I'd even heard of Warren Buffett. He tells me what he does. And I'm like, this is so obvious. Like, of course, this is how you do things. Like everything has a value associated with it. What you want to do is go, when I was interning for him, he came out, he said, he said, Mike, what do you want to pay for a dollar? And he just gave me this like this classic. What do, you, what do you want to pay for a dollar? And I was like, fifty cents. And he goes, "You're going to do fine in this business." And it, like that's the kind of stuff. It just resonated with me. I was like, "Well, yeah, of course, I want to buy something cheap and sell it at fair value. That's the way to make money." And it, that little grain stayed in me. It, I got a big hit when I invested in Zale at Breeden, and it, Zale effectively blew up. And it, it then, like a phoenix, uh, because of the CEO, rose from the ashes and then ended up getting sold and it ended up being fine. But I had a front row seat to misery of buying you know, aver an average business and then, and then having some leverage on an average business. It's not a fun place to be in a recession. Um, I can tell you, it's not always not Was that fun. the it's diamond? Like Was that the diamond? Yeah. Yeah. So there, there's two large. at one stage. Yeah, I think back in the back in like two, like 2008 or 2009, I owned it for like like a 50% pop, something like that. Not, not oh, wow. I bet you when you were buying it, so the CEO at the time was a guy called Neil Goldberg, who's a sweet human being. 
he, uh, we were all using Blackberries at the time. I was in the Dallas headquarters. You know, my boss basically moved me there. He's like, you're not coming home until the stock goes up. Like, <laughs> okay. So they gave me like, you know, they gave me a little office and I didn't do anything all day. I was just like, you know, reading the news, but so of course management team didn't want me there. It was like, I'm, and what, what value do I add? Like I'm a financial analyst. I don't help anybody. Uh, so he, CEO comes in, he shows me his Blackberry his stock was like 35 cents. You know, my basis was like $18. I mean, it, it's just brutal, but then they got sold and I forget the number. I want to say it's mid twenties. They got sold to, to K jewelers, to Sterling. So it ended up being fine, but it was a tough place to be. Um, and so I learned in that lesson, I was like, Oh wait, business quality actually is, is kind of important. And if I would have owned Ecolab instead of owning, you know, Zale, then I wouldn't have had this problem. And so my like, oh, just buy something cheap and flip it. I learned the lesson in 08 of like, no, 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 stay away from toxicity. And I got lucky in that when I went to Locustwood in 2011, you could buy quality for 10, 11, 12 times earnings. Like you could buy it at a number that, that I could really jump up the spectrum and own something. Like I bought Ecolab pro forma for their Nalco deal. And I want to say that was 11, 2011 or 2012. Uh, for pro forma, 10 times earnings, 10 times earnings for Ecolab. I mean, which now just seems like, oh my God. But at the time, I would call that a pretty target rich environment. You really could yeah. go up the quality spectrum and, and you could still get a deal. Now, the market was like 12 times or something. So, it, you know, it, you'd have to find out what's wrong with it now if you found it trading at 10 or 11 oh, yeah. times earnings. You, you it's, couldn't it's accept a, that at face value. No, it's, it's a certain, in fact, it's probably a short. Well, actually, I shouldn't say that in the current environment. Nothing's a short, but it's probably, if it's trading at 10 times earnings, it's probably a short because everybody's already looked over it and found all the problems. But that's, that's, so when I transitioned to buying, you know, better businesses and that the, the cherry on that charter, that was my last business that I owned. For me, I, you know, I just look at the world and I try to find the best thing to do. And my brain has just gone back to, you're buying cheap cash flows again because that's where the opportunity set is. The opportunity set is not in the best businesses. I have this crazy belief that if you want to outperform over a long period of time, you have to do things that other people aren't doing. And I realize that that has not been right for the last 10 years, but I sort of, I'm sort of like all in on the idea that if I want to outperform and I want to do stuff that actually is going to work over time, it, it can't have a lot of competition. If everybody's already playing the game, I'm not going to add anything. You know, I, what am I yeah. going to add to the game? I couldn't agree more. And I, I had a similar experience. The first decade of the 2000s, I watched all the really great businesses just went sideways for an entire decade, even though the underlying was doing well because they were so expensive. It just took years and years and years to work off the overvaluation. And the opportunities were in things trading at three times EBITDA, uh, might get bought out. It was just yep. sort of an easy game. You didn't really have to do that much work on them because the business is almost irrelevant at three times EBITDA with a whole lot of cash on the balance sheet and activists roaming around looking to do something. Tobias, it's almost like somebody should write a book about reversion <laughs> to the mean caused by private equity buyers of inexpensive assets. <laughs> you know, the I, thing, I, I feel like I've read one of those. <laughs> it's it's such an it's it, it feels like such an old fashioned strategy. You now, like this is the this is the thing. Like I've been doing that for ten years. I've been doing the wrong thing for ten years, basically. <laughs> even though it sort of did work up until two thousand seventeen, but it wasn't like a standout easy. Like right. the first the first part of the decade was like a forty five degree rant. The second decade of the millennium was like maybe a 15 degree ramp, something like that it was a yeah. much sort of, and then the last three years have just been misery as it's sort of all gone backwards. I, I, I would have lost the bet. I would have told you uh, if we go back five years ago and you said, well, this is what I'm doing. And my belief is 
at the time, I, I forget the number, but you know, private equity is sitting on a hundred billion dollars of cash and Berkshire Hathaway has a similar amount of cash. I'm like, what are you going to buy? You're going to go buy, you're going to buy Amazon at 20 times revenue. Like, and by the way, they should have, that would have been the right move. Yeah, that would have been the right move. So, but I, but my thought would have been like, oh no, we're going to go buy things that are, you know, what, that there is a discount embedded in the valuation because of something I can fix, right? So there's some strategically, they've got maybe a good group of assets, but, you know, they just can't bring them to market well. Well, you know, I'm a little bigger than them, I can do it. Or their access to capital has been constrained and so private equity will buy them. Private equity hasn't touched that stuff. And maybe that's uh, maybe that's going to continue. You know, I, I really Why don't know. Why is that? I, that's a great question. I, 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 that's what I'm saying. I would have been wrong. I would have told you that's a logical outcome of all of this. But that's not where private equity is. They, they're just not there. I mean, they're doing other things. And I don't know. I don't know why they're not interested in that stuff. It may be for the same reason that the public markets aren't because they look at public markets to tell them what's going to work in an IPO. And if they can't underwrite a high terminal value, then they're just not going to do it. That would make sense to me. But, you know, I, I confess, I, I, I understand very little about most things. And I, I understand even less about the internal workings of large private equity firms. I remember very clearly in 2014, when I pitched Wiley for deep value, I said, there's a whole lot of private equity capital out there. In fact, it's like it's a cyclical high. And so that means mm-hmm. typically what that has meant is that in the next five years, there's going to be this cyclical boom. Yeah, in a tidal wave. Yeah. Yeah. And it didn't, it didn't eventuate. It didn't come through at any stage. And I feel like we really hit an air pocket from 2015 to, to date where they've been silent. I don't know why. Well, it, it almost for me, as I kind of look at the world today, you know, as long as you have the right people who really have your back managing your business and the business generates cash and it doesn't go away, it's almost like you have, it has to do okay. You know, it, it, it's almost like it has to work. Of course, there can be bad luck, but as long as the guys running the show are trustworthy, honest people, the business itself isn't just completely getting disintermediated by Amazon or somebody of the like. It's like, you know, the worst case scenario is you have an, uh, a, a return that's inefficient in my view, but it, it also just is so much more logical to me that if I buy something that's, say I buy a, a, do, I buy a dollar's worth of cash flow for 50 cents, it's so much more logical to me that I'm going to get that, like make more money over time and do better than if I pay a dollar 50 for that cash yeah. flow of a dollar because there's some like magic at the end of the rainbow that's going to pay us all. It just hasn't, you know, you can read, there's so many books about this and maybe the world is different today, but you know, O'Shaughnessy wrote a book called What Works on Wall Street, and he walks through this from the late 60s until 2011. He's just over time, paying a low multiple for cash flows has been the right move. <laughs> Hasn't been recently. I think it probably will be again. It, you know, it's so fun. I just think about things so differently from most people. Like, I think about it like my own. If I was going to go underwrite a business and own the whole thing, would you rather? you know, pay a huge number for it or a small number for it. It's like, well, obviously a small number. And the outcome for me and my family over time is going to be very dependent on what the business does. But also, you know, if I pay a hundred million dollars for a business generating a million dollars in profit, it's probably not going to work out very well for me, or I should be able to find something better to do with a hundred million. Sorry, Tobias, I told you, I'll just keep, if you let, if you pull the string on my back, it'll just all, (laughs) it'll just, it'll just all spew out. So it it should work that way. Like balance sheets should matter. Capital allocation should matter. It hasn't, but it should. Um, and I think it will. That's my bet. For me, in some ways, it's been a good experience because I think that I did focus too much on what the stock price did after I bought something because that it just sort of 
the relationship had been quite tight through most of my investing career that if you bought something cheap enough, the market did wake up to it pretty quickly and, and then mm -hmm. you got paid. And more recently, what's happened is that just hasn't happened, even though the underlying no. business has done reasonably well. And the so the yield is still pretty good. The cash flows are growing. It's a much fatter cash flow than the market. That should be something that would work. And for, for the last few years, that hasn't been something. And that's that's been sort of the thing that has driven me the most crazy until I got to this yeah. point where I was like, well, the opportunity doesn't exist until that happens before yeah. you buy it. So there's no reason why this is going to rectify itself quickly after you buy it. You yeah. just got to get more kind of used to that being the case. Well, you know, I wonder too, if it, if there's not a, so I know how, what Henry Singleton would have done in that situation. Like yeah, I know because we have the book stock. and he did it right. Yeah. Massively. And by the way, he would, he would have told you, he's like, I don't care whatever you think I'm, but if you'll sell me stock, I'll buy 80% of my float. And it creates enormous value for the people who stick around. It's the same with Malone is what they would do is take advantage of that situation. One, and, and by the way, they caught a lot of, excuse my French, they caught a lot of shit for it. So maybe, but it is interesting to me that CEOs are not doing that. And I, I can think of one in particular as a friend who I'm like, well, you know, and he, it's just because of the, the, the social nature and like the immediate nature of information and because everybody knows everything that there's an image thing that people are very focused on. I think a lot of these gaps would close if, it, if the same thing were happening in the 60s, 70s, 80s, where we didn't have Twitter um, and, and, you know, people were just like, this is the right thing to do. I'm just going to do it versus, you know, you get shamed for like, oh, you, you know, made me sell you my stock at $2 and it turns out it was worth eight, you know? And so I, I but I, I, I thought I probably would have seen more of it. I haven't seen any of that. I, I, I don't see any of that anywhere. You know, I think part of the reason is many smaller business typically that are run by the founder who sort of went through the IPO and is still there. They are, they're sort of more of an engineering type and they haven't, nobody has come and said to them, one of the options that you have is to buy back stock in your business. And this yeah. is what impact it will have on the business. And I found when I was working in an activist firm, we'd go in and have that conversation. Many times there'd be no need for any activism because they'd say, oh, I did, and then we just, just explain it. And then they'd sort of sit there and think about it. And then a few months later, the, the buyback You'd would emerge. No. And you think, well, they just hadn't had any, nobody had sort of said that to them at the time. Well, it makes sense. I mean, the, the, the um, active managers have been so just decimated and now yeah. they're, cha they're chasing the top names. So yeah. there's probably nobody in that room anymore. That's probably the problem is there's nobody <laughs> in the room. It's just you and me on podcasts. Like, and Wall Street Bets. <laughs> yeah, Wall Street Bets. <laughs> exactly. Wall Street Bets is, is democratizing investing for the masses and, and, and making millionaires by the day. It's I mean, they figured, out, they figured out GME, which like I saw Mike Barry go into that and I, it was in, you know, it was in my screen it was in my screen as my small my small cap screen for a long time is the cheapest thing on the screen because it was yeah. trading below net cash they've got some yeah. liabilities in the in the leases oh, but man. you don't need to be a, a genius to kind of repurpose those things then they get uh the chewy guy comes in take some board seats take some capital you could sort of see something potentially yeah. going to happen the bubbles there. yeah you really it, could you know, I had I had Scott Jackson, who's a fund manager on my podcast in August, and he laid out the whole thing for me. And I just thought that I didn't kind of appreciate how powerful Wall Street bets really was at the time. And I mm -hmm. kind of laughed at the thought they could do it. But now that they've done it, maybe maybe there is a big return to to deep value now for that reason. Well, they're very well, maybe. I mean, you know, it, it's interesting. I, I'm not convinced that 
So the problem with going deep values, the problem with the way I think about the world is I'm very concerned how a balance sheet looks, right? It, it matters yeah. to me. But when I yeah. look at business, I'm like, well, let's look at the balance sheet. Let's see how much cash they have. Let's see how it's changed over time. You know, and it's the way I think about, I think about business is the way I think about myself. Like the most yeah. interesting metric for me at the end of every month or the end of every year is what, what my net, net worth is done. It's my balance sheet. It's not, you know, the, the income, I don't bring in income my wife does. That's not as important to me. It's the balance sheet. So I'm sitting here and going through balance sheets and saying, well, this is an asset that's not appreciated. This is an, you know, th that's not for the masses and that's not the market we're in, right? The market we're in is, you know, there's a ticker symbol, you know, and by the way, you know, Elon says signal. So I go by SGNOL and, and it's like, that has nothing to do with the signal that, you know, it's, it's the, the market we're in isn't one of like, oh, let's go discover a hidden gem and then expose it. The market we're in is, well, where are the flows going to go next? Yeah. Right. That's the question. Where are the flows going to go next? Are they, are the passives going to be buying the megas and the, and by the way, I'm fascinated with that. I love market strategy. I, it, it, it's, I, I'm like addicted to it. I really love it. I don't do anything with that information. I don't buy anything or sell anything or I, you know, I don't profit from it, but I, you know, watching this GME and AMC and people talk about reflexivity with that. And it's just, I am just fascinated, but I don't own any of them. And I, I never, I, I would never buy them. I would never short them. I have no view on them whatsoever, but I'm fascinated okay, by that's, it. That's the problem that I have. How do you, how do you figure it? How do you assess that opportunity? I can I can understand value. I can't I can't assess operations. Yeah, no, I am I, I am at this again, it gets back to what we were the, the first thing we were talking about, which is you know, do I understand it and does it fit my personality? I don't understand it. And it, it certainly does not fit my person being up three hundred percent in a day and then being down, you know, three hundred percent, you're losing it all and more the next day. I, I don't I don't want to play it. I, it I'm looking for 10% a year. <laughs> These guys are making 30x that in in a day. You know, it's a, that just doesn't fit my personality. It's it's just not it's not for me. So I I watch it and I just smile. And like last night, I was watching. Uh, I couldn't help myself. It, it's so perfect that the Big Short, Michael Burry, was the Big Short, and then he was the long that blew That's up. Crazy, the big, it's like so perfect. So I, I know it's insane. So I, it, and it's just so perfect. So I was watching the big short and I, I, I put out a tweet last night, which I thought was like the funniest thing I've ever tweeted and nobody liked it. Of course, you know, it's like my, my humor just sucks. So I, I was like, I had a glass of wine. I was just like giggling to myself as I was tweeting this out. And I, I get it, you know, there's pain and it's bad for society. And I'm, I'm not trying to make light of something that's going to end up, you know, hurting people, I think. But uh, I just thought, how perfect is it that Burry was, you know, in, in, the, in the movie was at the center of that short. And then in, you know, now in current market, you know, narrative, he is at like, was early to that party that's blowing up the short. So it's like, that's it just, then, it a symmetry. Again now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. both ways. Yeah. And I'd also, I love that. I, I don't know Burry and, you know, I, I've never met the guy. I don't know him, but I just love love that that guy really could care less what everybody else thinks like say anything you want about him he could care i mean he was eviscerated for gamestop long last year i remember people were like this guy is a complete moron he's gone off the deep end and it turns out he had the best security of the last 10 years sitting on his and i don't know if he still owns it, i have no idea but it's like turns out he was the smartest guy in the room he had the best security uh, of the next of the past decade sitting on his balance sheet it's like man yeah. that guy's he's crazy he's, he's he, he's got that approach where he just says, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I know that I don't know how I get paid, but I know how I don't lose money here. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's kind of sounds, sounds smart, Tobias. Sounds smart. That's a good approach. <laughs> resonance. Has, has resonance. It worked, has it worked for a long time? <laughs> well, yeah, we, you and I are just doing the wrong stuff. That's our problem. Yeah. I told my wife about it and she was like, you had that in the screen and you didn't buy it. And I said, it kind of ran before I got to put together the portfolio. So it just didn't wind up in anything. Well, in, in your defense, in our defense, I mean, it was kind of a lottery ticket that just hit, right? Like, well, that's who true. Would have, I mean, you know, who would have thought that, you know, $7 goes to 400 I mean, that, that wasn't on wasn't on my bingo card. And it wasn't clear that management was going to do anything no. with the with the cash they had on their balance sheet either, that you needed no. something like, you needed uh, the Chewy guy, Ryan Cohen, I think his name is, to come in. To come in and say, yeah, I, you and know, it's Barry. interesting to me. Well, Burry, uh, no, it's interesting to me that um, I heard Malone say this about so Malone had a, a similar problem in the late 90s. He had a lot of investments in some small companies that just explode, their stocks just exploded. You know, that's, that's Malone's strategy is I have an operating business and somebody wants to come in and partner with me, we'll partner, but I want equity stakes, right? And that, that's how Liberty Media was born uh, out of TCI. And so I think it was a YouTube that he gave to, a, a presentation he gave to the University of Denver. Um, and he was talking about you know his history and. I think that's where he talked about this. He said, it's a really difficult problem because you have this basket of assets that have just ripped. And if you're the manager, like you don't, you can't, if you sell, you're going to get sued. If you issue stock, you're probably going to get sued. People are going to eviscerate you and hate you. And so it's this weird problem of like, yeah, it seems like it would be so great, but at the same time, you know, it, it's really not wonderful. So John's strategy was, you know, rather than um, this is, I, I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to say the way I interpret it, but I'm sure if John were on this, he would probably take exception to the way I'm describing it. But John's idea was rather than sell it and give, you know, pay taxes and have a bunch of bag holders uh, or, you know, keep it in his, his equity, he decided to wrap it up, put bonds around it, and then basically make the bondholders the, the bag holders, which it, it, and that's exactly what happened. Like for the vast majority of those securities were wrapped in those bonds and they like the sprint backed uh, exchangeable debt is you know, still well below par and, and they can't, they, they can't be put back to the company until 2030, you know? So it's like he created 30 year bond bag holders, which I think is pretty funny. Short of that, I don't know what AMC, I guess they're raising equity and GME should, I don't know if they are, but um, you know, I get that it's tough. It's like you, you know, people are going to be upset, probably lose money, and you're going to get sued either that? way. Yeah, you're going to get sued either way. Hey, Mike, we're coming up on time. Uh, you retired, so you're not kind of promoting anything. But if folks want to follow along with what you're doing, how do they do that? Oh, well, the, the easiest way to do it is just to follow me on Twitter. I, I, I uh, ignore narrative. Is yeah, there any uh, underscore anything in there? No, no, at ignore narrative. That was that was free. Turns out it was a horrible name choice because it was available in 2018 when I, when I joined Twitter. But yeah, follow me and 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 uh, I post my portfolio every month. I, I should have said last time I posted it that I now only own two securities, so it's going to be very volatile. So uh, bear with me if I have a good month or a bad month. It doesn't mean anything. It just means I'm I'm very concentrated book. So and I should send people to your uh, podcast with Bill Brewster on the business yes. brew is outstanding. That was the oh first, thank you. Uh, that was the first one that he did. Uh, I love chatting with Bill. Bill and I laugh until we cry when we when we chat. <laughs> he gave and, me the ins inside scoop on your podcast too, which I just found to be hilarious. I thought it was great. You guys did a good job on that, so that was fun. Yeah, uh, thanks, man. Hey, Mike Mitchell, Michael Mitchell, ignore narrative. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, Tobias, this is awesome. Appreciate it. I'm honored and humbled. Thank you. <laughs>